Hello everybody, Mark Carlson here, SNEA Technical Council Co-Chair. Welcome to the SDC Podcast. Every week, the SDC Podcast presents important technical topics to the storage developer community. Each episode is hand-selected by the SNEA Technical Council from the presentations at our annual Storage Developer Conference. The link to the slides is available in the show notes at snea.org slash podcasts. You are listening to SDC Podcast, episode 148. Hello, my name is Mark Acosta. I'm here to give a talk on data placement. Why data placement? Well, data placement, if done correctly in the right situations, can save a significant amount of storage costs. So cost savings is always a good thing. Data placement's one way to go off and achieve it. So data placement is basically for people that like organization and believe that if you organize things, they're easier to retrieve, store, and that's them in that kind of way. So if you can imagine your storage device is a bag and all your files are these beads, you can see that if it came time to move all the white ones, it'd be kind of a little bit difficult. Um, so this is kind of a, um, I don't know, a really, really bad storage device. But if you took a look at this as a storage device, then you can imagine that you had to move the white beads. Things kind of suddenly got a lot easier. And that's kind of the nature of, of data placement, that if you put things in a particular order and then you maintain that order, things become easier to move around and to find. But when you initially store something, you know, and organize it, I think about, okay, my garage, I take it all apart, take it all out, I stack it up. But over time, things come in and things need to change. Um, the order kind of gets um, all messed up. So, if you're like me, I kind of have an area where I just collect all my changes or the things that I want to add, and then at some time I go do a bulk, bulk update, a bulk reordering of the garage. And a lot of things in storage are like that too, where the media prefers large changes over small changes. There's large block writes when it comes down to just the total megabytes per second and throughput of a system are so much higher if you do big chunks in it versus all these small little ones. It was about 1994 that uh, Rosenblum and Oyster House introduced the log structured file system. Now what the log structured file system did was it understood the nature of the media at the time, HDDs, and optimize the placement of files and updates of files to reduce the mechanical latency. Um, at the time, I remember being around 10 milliseconds or maybe 12 milliseconds per seek, and maybe in 1994, uh, 10 to 15 megabytes per second on a media rate. So if you can imagine if I'm doing... Uh, 10 millisecond seeks, I can do about 100 IOs per second if they're 4K IOs. Oh, that doesn't come out much. It comes out to be like 400K bytes per second. But if somehow I can make all of those writes sequential on the media, I can do uh, 10 to 15 megabytes per second, about a 25X improvement in throughput just by eliminating the mechanical movement of the heads. So their uh, log-structured file system took that concept and put, pointed it in two directions. One, let's point the metadata and the files close, put them close together on the media to minimize seek. And then two, on updates, let's turn these random writes into sequential writes onto the media. So the first innovation on the log-structured file system was the recognition that the file had uh, metadata associated with it, and the metadata wasn't uh, co-located. So here they show the one, two, three, four different types of structures on the media 
But yet, when they were placed by the file systems, they were placed not directly next to each other, but required seek, uh, seek operations to go retrieve the entire set. With the log structure file system, however, you could see that they all the data was placed very close together, such that when you went to go do an operation like read a uh, file, a lot less mechanical movement was needed. The second optimization was done on how files are updated. So if you can imagine the Unix fast file system at time zero already has four data files laid out on media sequentially in nice, pretty, pretty nice order. And then when it comes time to do the changes to the files, um, they need to go off and do these random writes. Because the file system updates in place, it will actually do a seek to this location and then write the date of the media. Then we'll need to do another seek, another seek, and another seek. So this operation of four uptakes to four seek operations. But imagine in the log structured file system, instead of doing that, um, the operations, the writes are all collated in one place in a new segment of the, uh, of the media. And there's left what we call holes or places where the media or data no longer exists on the media. It's, it's essentially old data. So you can see in this operation, the instead of doing the four file updates, it does four sequential updates, and an indirection table is used that when this file is read, it knows to go and seek, find this head. So it's pretty efficient on the right. If you're reading back sequentially, these seek operations do slow things down. So the third and final operation is what um, Sprite called the copy and compact. We talked a little bit about those holes. You know, here's some holes where there used to could be some old data, used to be some old data, but I'd much rather have some wide, long, sequential place to write new data. So what do we need to do? We do this copy operation, which frees up a nice continuous space. So this is the original uh, garbage collection for that we have now referred to in SSDs is very similar in operation. So the results that they achieved on the log structure file system are as expected and extremely good. If you take a look at this create number, oh, what is that? It's about a 15x improvement in creating files, which you would expect if you eliminated these um, small block uh, random movements to go and write data and replace them with one big large sequential uh, write. Um, yeah, we're going to be a lot faster. So that was really, really good news. And then it's also on read, that's a little bit about the uh, file placement, that the locality of the metadata was close to it. But one of the things that was very interesting about this um, conclusion section was this one thing where they noted that in that this LFS works very well for these large files. You know, in particular, the files that require no garbage collection. Um, they're things that are created and destroyed in, the, in, in their entirety. So wouldn't that be great if uh, files never had to change and storage never had to change? Um, but that was kind of what was said is if we can figure out a way to go do this, things would get a lot better. In 1996, uh, Patrick O'Neill um, introduced the log structured merge tree. Now what Patrick and his team found was that small changes to B trees were relatively very inefficient. And if you contrast that to, I have lots of changes to index, or I want to do create an entire index from scratch, it was much more efficient. So the log structure tree did exactly that. It avoided updating existing B trees. It kept enough in memory. And when it came time to it, they would create an entire uh, B tree index. And this was a lot more efficient and provided um, some performance improvement. Now, the bulk loading versus the insert gets kind of compl complicated. So I'm going to defer this discussion to this 
gentleman that I found here, Yen Dietrich. Uh, he wrote this book, ebook in Data and Patterns and Patterns and Data Management, which focuses a lot on SQL queries and what what workloads do they generate, how do they work, how do indexes work and joining. But he had a very good explanation of this bulk loading of B trees. So it is important to understand a little bit about how log structures merge trees worked. And you see in this area right here, let's just say I get some updates and I keep them in memory. And so all the new writes go to this um, tree in this area. But eventually you need to merge that into the next level tree. And as in this example, this is simply a two level tree, the memory tree and a tree on disk. So if you could imagine that this memory on disk has all the uh, data that is exist in the database. And when this uh, memory table needs to be merged into this, and just for the sake of argument, let's pretend it's going to be merged into this uh, file right here. You will take the data from this file, this file, and then go off and create a new file from it. And once that new file is created, the original file or sets of original files are deleted. They're no longer needed. So you have an example of here is the entire data in a file or a B tree in a file. And the updates come and get merged into it. And once that merge is completed, this file is no longer needed. So it's erased in its entirety. This right here kind of shows a similar thing that this leg of the B tree needs to be merged with these this leg of the B tree so that they come together and then they create a new uh, file, a new immutable file that has all the uh, data inside of it as well as the index to find the data. All right, so let's do a little bit of a recap here. Um, we started off with an HDD device that, first of all, it maintains the spatial locality of the files on writes. And its media is much more efficient on sequential accesses. And then we go on over and we pair that up with a log structure file system that minimizes the head movement of the HDD by placing data sequentially on media. But it had this problem with GC. Now comes the, uh, next comes the log structured merge tree that minimized the garbage collection for log structure file systems by the creation and use of immutable files. You put it all together and we end up with a very efficient storage system. And I represent that once again by these beads that are separated by files with the color indicating each file. So, Life was pretty good in the 1990s. Um, you had an end-to-end -end data placement. Uh, first of all, you had a file system that was optimized for the storage media. It understood that hard drives really like sequential, that you can get great performance improvement with these sequential writes that they did. And then you then had applications that were storing data, such as log-structured merge tree that started to use these large block immutable files. So here you had a, really an end-to-end -end data placement, perfect coming together of all three components. What happened was kind of interesting. In came SSDs, you know, and SSDs are all built on NAND. And the most, one of the most interesting thing about NAND is it has some very nice properties. It likes to be written and erased in large segments. And that type of property, if you thought quickly about it, guess what? The log structure file system likes to write in large segments for efficiency and is used to collecting what's ever left over in fragments and can do the garbage collection. So just a log structure file system on top of a NAND add a storage interface to it, and voila, you got your modern SSD, and um, life is great. 
So now in the system, instead of a hard drive, we have an SSD, and the question comes up is, how does the addressing scheme of an SSD affect the overall system performance relative to how an addressing scheme of a hard drive would affect system performance? So, um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about this access right here. First of all, I did a RocksDB overwrite workload, 100% write workload. All I want to do is take a look at the write amp of the SSD. And if you remember correctly, um, just for some sake, if you have a write amp equal to four, what does that mean? Well, it means for every one megabyte that you write uh, from the host, you need to have four megabytes of write plus three megabytes of read. So write amp of four has seven X of the NAND bandwidth of a write amp of one, four X being writes, three X being read. So I took a look at the normalized host bandwidth and by normalized, I simply said, oh, okay. Um, that's gonna be the write plus the read uh, normalized to this point right here of one. So here's normalized band host bandwidth. And on this axis right here, I have um, my number of background jobs. And that's how many simultaneously merge operations I'm doing of this log structured merge tree. So if you take a look at, uh, I got one backdrop running, I get about a one X bandwidth, that's my baseline. But if I take a look at this 3.84 terabyte drive, well, what, is it? what do I mean by 3.84 terabyte? Let's just say I have four terabytes of data of NAND on the device, and I format it to be 3.84 um, user capacity. So there's a little bit of OP in there, but not a whole lot. But when I scale it to four, I virtually get no increase in throughput. So um, what did I do? I wanted to speed things up. I increased the number of background jobs and nothing happened. All right, so good enough. So what if I did another thing? So what if I took that same drive and I reformatted to 3.2 terabytes? Oh, okay, that's pretty good. And you can take a look at this line right there. And I was able to scale by 2x. So Doubling the number of background jobs, I got 2x the bandwidth. So I got some type of scalability. But then just for grins, I took that same drive and I formatted down to 2 terabytes of user capacity. And I got another 2 and a half, another half or 2 and a half of the 1x bandwidth or the one background job. So there's a little bit more scaling in that. So what is the difference between these three? Well, we know that it's user capacity, but we also know that the more less user capacity I have, the more I can give to over-provisioning. So this has, wow, you know, 100% over-provisioning, 50% capacity, 50% OP, and by the definition of over-provisioning, that's 100%. Um, this is uh, a little bit more, and this is more, but if I took a look at the right amp, Wow, this two terabyte right here pretty much had a write amp of one across the board. And you would expect that because there's so much extra space that I can literally rewrite the entire drive before I do any garbage collection. So you would expect a write amp of about one. Uh, the 3.2 went to a write amp close to one here to a write amp of around two. On the um, 3.84, I started off at a write amp of two and a half, and then I ran, I ran up to a write amp of 3.5. So you can see this write amp of 3.5 here um, represents a considerable amount of NAND workload because that's 3.5 of writes plus 2.5 of reads is the total NAND bandwidth. So I got a total of six megabytes of NAND bandwidth for every one megabyte of host traffic. Um, well, if I took a look at here with a write amp of one, well, I get one megabyte of writes, so I get one 
megabyte of NAND bandwidth. So I have one sixth the NAND bandwidth going here. The, the back end of the SSD is one sixth as busy, busy. So it enables that extra bandwidth to be given to the host. And this is why we see this um, scaling of the throughput. So if I took a little bit of deeper dive into it, oh, okay, Mark, uh, was there any sp uh, spatial locality hints or information given by the file system? And in this test workload, I used XFS. And I took a block trace of XFS, and this was for a uh, background jobs. I think I set this one to number four. And you can see for the most part, if I take a look at the LBA ranges in one period, there's typically four operations being written at a time. These, forgot, sorry about this, but this access being the LBA written, and this is simply the command coming to the drive. So right here looks like a small uh, straight line, but that's the sequential write to um, the S SSD. Here's another sequential write. Here's another sequential write. And here's a mostly mostly sequential write through here. Any hard drive, if you would have done this, would have had four different um, sequential threads and the spatial locality of the operation would have maintained, meaning this file would have been all located physically close to each other and same with this file and this file and this file. But we, with the SSD, spatial locality is not maintained. And to demonstrate that, once again, I'll go back to if this was a hard drive and you're doing updates, um, things are changing in place, or we go back and forth. You know, maybe I write this amount to this data. I write this amount. I come back here. I can start off with this LBA and finish it all up. Now, this file right here has complete locality on the media. It's all sequential. But an SSD with a log structure file system doesn't store based on spatial locality. It stores it based on temporal locality. Um, so as writes come into these different files, it all gets mixed up. And this is in the sum same erase block. So when it comes time to erase, for instance, this light little blue-green blue files, ooh, I got it all over the place. So there's going to need to be a lot of garbage collection and hence a higher write amp. So, so write amp goes up in this system simply because we did not maintain the spatial locality of the files. They were stored based on temporal locality. So let's do another recap. Um, like before, we had a log structure merge tree application that created large immutable files. In this example, we used an extent file system that placed data sequentially on media in large blocks. Didn't do any GC, but still um, uh, gave enough spatial locality through its addressing to the storage system to intelligently place the files in a sequential order. But then we ended up with an SSD that uses a log structure file system, which uses temporal data placement algorithm, does not place them necessarily sequential on MIDI, and hence did not take advantage of the large immutable file. And we had high levels of garbage collection and write in. So I would really think of this system not really as a neat uh, square set of box with a bunch of places to store data, but we ended up with kind of more of a bag storage where everything gets mixed up together and we have problems with write and performance scalability. So the question comes up is how to fix this problem. Well, we can fix this problem by a very simple fix. Make an SSD that uses a block addressing method to place data spatially. And that's exactly what the ZNS or zone namespace does that. So Matthias Bjorland is going to give a complete presentation and do a deep dive into zone namespaces. Make sure you sit into his presentation.
for all the details. With ZNS in place, we've returned to this end-to-end -end data placement. Once again, we have, a, for example, a log structure merge tree application where the files are stored or files are all immutable. Then in this example, we can also have a log structure file system that maintains the spatial locality of these immutable files. It allocates a sequential LBA or a sequential block addressing method for each files. Once again, the large files reduce GC. And then finally, with the introduction of ZNS, we have a method to communicate to SSDs on which files we want to be placed where. And once again, that will reduce garbage collection and all the files are very neatly stored in uh, nice little zones that make it easy to migrate, replace, and reduces garbage collection. So understanding of these files and their behavior, their migration patterns is really important if you're looking into data placement. So I started off most of my career using block trace to analyze the workloads of storage systems. But over time, it's become more apparent that these LBA addressings or these blocks written aren't independent writes. They're really part of files. And that to understand workloads, you need to go up a level and start taking a look at the migration patterns of files and the different characteristics. So the study of files I call phiology. So I took a look into the Cassandra files, mostly because everybody starts off and does RocksDB, and Cassandra is also a log-structured merge tree. So I just decided to do something a little bit different and examine Cassandra instead of a RocksDB workload or a RocksDB application. So basically, Cassandra is a KV store that uses this log structured merge tree. And on this right side right here, I've got a list of all the files that, um, that are created by, not all the files, a list of files that were created by Cassandra. And you can see that there are these groups of files that are designated on there. And by far the largest is this data.db. The rest of these files in RocksDB are all part of the main SST file, but for some reason, Cassandra makes them a little bit differently, uh, puts it, has the file layouts a little bit differently. So I'm mostly interested in the data.db file because it represents the majority of the data storage of the system. In this example, I just set the size of the data DB file to 256, and you can see it come out at 257 uh, megabytes. And the test workload was simply uh, y YCSB, did a thread count of one. Um, the, about the only change I did to the script was I went out and set it for a uniform distribution versus the default, which was the Ziffian. And I put uh, 15 million key loads, and then I put followed by 16 million random puts, just to make sure everything was um, everything was steady state near the end of it. Uh, background compaction sets I set to eight, and then I set a target file size of 160 megabytes. So data collection on data.db files. Um, you know, I looked at block trace for so much of my career for workloads, but there is a, a Linux command called inotify-wait. And inotify-wait allows you to uh, point to a directory or a set of files and capture some events for those files. And those events could be anything from when is it read, when is it open, when is it deleted on it. Uh, the one problem I had with inotify wait was that it had this, I believe, a second resolution. And when you're opening many files very quickly, that wasn't enough. So one of the guys from our uh, research team went in and modified inotify wait that gave me nanoseconds resolutions. This slide right here is simply the man page for inotify wait. 
on it. Um, you can see it's pretty simple. Uh, you have um, the events over here that you're allowed to watch for, and then you point to a directory on it. So the very first file I looked at was, or the very first thing I looked at in the DataDB file was its lifetime. And I like this graph because it's pretty interesting. If you take a look at the different levels or the different life cycles, let's go over this uh, graph a little bit. On this one right now is the file lifetime. And this is simply the test time. So this test ran for, well, what, about 42,000 um, seconds. But these files down here all have the shortest life uh, cycle. And then you can see there's these nice even bounds, which is kind of uh, really, really kind of cool when you think about it. Because if you remember in the log structured merge tree, you know, you have these growing sets of trees that have larger and larger data sets. So you would expect the ones that are very, very small and at the lowest level of the tree would have the highest access rate and be overwritten the quickest. And that's exactly what you see here. My guess is, or my belief is that these are all at the lowest level. These may be here and so forth. And this is the reason I changed it to a uniform distribution. With the ZipVN, I wouldn't see this. With a uniform, you would expect each of the entire, well, the entire log structure merge tree to have an even workload. So the files in each level should have about the same uh, life cycle on it. The, um, when you take a look at this, these life cycle, the file, I did find one pretty interesting paper by this Tejan Kim in the FAST 19. And I have a reference right here on it, but what they were, what, uh, Kim did was he was looking at um, using NVMe strings and then was applying string allocations to the highest or the hottest file and showed a big reduction and a significant reduction in write amp by using the strings on here, which makes sense because if you have a super large file that um, doesn't get modified and then you have some high frequency data in there, you can end up with what we call trapped OP. So this file portion may be on this level right there. This portion comes to here. He's written once in a blue moon. He's written quickly. You mix them together, and you end up with this dead spot when it's in there. So you may have to go and reclaim to put that, reclaim just this little bit of space, and this may not be the best greedy choice for the garbage collection algorithm. So his paper showed the most that, hey, if I group all of the high frequency data together, I end up with less trap charge, and, or not trap charge, less trapped OP, and I have a lower write amplification. I notify weight kind of gave some of other interesting uh, data for us SSD man kind of guys. Uh, one of them was the number of open files. Um, so this is when I start running this application, how many files are open at one particular time for uh, SSD people, or this tells us how many zones or parity contexts that we need to have to support this application. And in this version of Cassandra, I think I used a number of background jobs of eight, and I saw 45 open files through as the maximum number reached through the run. One could probably imagine with some tuning on the application size, this could possibly be reduced, but this is the number um, I got just running it as is. Another useful piece of information was this file open time. And uh, this is interesting of man for is how long before a file starts to be writing potentially in a NAND block, and then how long before later it says I'm done. So this this can give you what is the how much time do I have to have the NAND block open? And the open time of the NAND block means is that not every page is written, so there's a little bit more higher susceptibility to read disturb effects. So. Uh, NAND open time, we 
demand suppliers specify and like to keep it uh, as short as possible. If you like this iNotify way, um, there is the standard Unix, but I got my patch from Nicholas Cassell that just gave me that in, increased resolution. So to better measure things like open data files. Uh, so I wanted to thank Nicholas for providing that piece of code for me. So um, we talk a little bit about all these large mutable files, how we can put them nicely in zones and everything should work really well, but life is not really perfect. Um, File sizes will vary. I mean, so it's not 100%. You can align these files into some NAND storage blocks um, such that you get this perfect world where I erase the file, or I delete the file, means I erase one NAND block and there's no garbage collection whatsoever. May or may not happen, but it does not happen that often. So, when we're taking a look at what we can do with storage, I kind of like to take a look at, you know, setting up goalposts. Um, so I think of the left goalpost is these are large files. Um, if I was able to maintain the spatial locality of these large files, and they may not be perfectly aligned with the NAND blocks, is there any gain I can expect in reduction of write app or being able to utilize more of the uh, disk space? But on the other side of it, you know, I kind of, well, this left goalpost is this is your entitlement. You know, without any other fancy tricks, I should be able to achieve this type of savings. But on the right side, um, hey, we know that these are immutable files we can see from the phyology of Cassandra that there's some high-frequency uh, files and there's some low-frequency files. If I was able to take that information, I could possibly do better with the... Um, I could possibly do better in the utilization and reduction of write amps. So let's talk a little bit about this left goalpost. So one of the first places I saw on this, quote, left goalpost was this um, performance of a greedy garbage collection scheme in flash-based solid-state drives published in, by IBM Research. And, um, and what was interesting about that is if you take a look at it, what he did here was he said, oh, okay, if I have a, a NAND block and I have... Um, let's say 512 separate pages in this NAND block, and I did random writes to a page size in each of this NAND blocks, what is the corresponding write amplification? So if you take a look at this portion right here, he talks about the occupancy of it. And that's just my meaning, um, how much OP do we have? But on this graph axis right here, we have the right amplification. And if you take a look at it, this um, uh, C equal 512 is when the um, NAND is 512 location. And let's just pick this point right here. And it has a right amp of around maybe 2.8 or so. Okay, that's pretty interesting. But let's take a look at this other end of the spectrum. Now, what if I had my NAND block just once again, but instead I only had four blocks and I was doing random writes to these four blocks? Huh. Well, it doesn't take much. If I just happened to get a hit here, I now have a much lower write app because I only have to garbage collect um, these two blocks right here. So these quote, writing of, of, or dividing NAND into larger blocks or hence writing larger blocks also reduces write amplification. So if you take a look at that same point, huh, it's about 1.5 or so. So I had like a 1.5 um, to something like a 2.8, just eyeballing it, change in write amplification simply by the size of the write or the percentage 
of the right of the entire um, NAND block. Kind of cool. That was really kind of cool. So I, I took. So I really liked the research, uh, the work IBM research did. Um, I think they introduced the concept that there is more than one way to uh, reduce the right amp of the system. You can reduce the right amp, you know, as we all know, by adding over provisioning, but also you can reduce the right amp of a system by increasing the size of the file or the increasing the size of the right. And it's really meant to be a percentage. So if I could write, as we saw earlier, if I could write 20, do random writes of 25% of the NAND block size at the time, I was able to reduce the write amp from 2.8 to 1.5. So that was a big gain on it. So I wanted to go off and reproduce that. So I created a FIO script. And what I did in this FIO script was I varied the size of the block size. And I varied it such that it went from anywhere from practically zero, meaning a very small, let's just say 4K random writes, to a very large write such that it was 2.6 or so the size of the zone capacity, or, you know, we think of it as also the NAND block size. So this is kind of interesting because um, when you got to these larger block size, this being the ratio of the block size to the zone capacity, this being the right amp of the system as the, the ratio of the block size to the zone capacity increases, we got some very steep drops in the right amps of these curves, you know, down here. So without spatial locality, I'm kind of stuck on this access, meaning with the way that the SSD stores everything temporarily. I got those four workloads. They're all getting merged together. The only way to scale performance, improve quality of service is to add OP, which takes off, uh, takes away from the user capacity. And you can see in this system, if I'm at this node, the only way to reach, achieve a write app of one is to kind of reformat my drive and give up half of its capacity to over-provisioning and only use half of its capacity to store the database or whatever I'm trying to store on the, on the system. So as I go and I take a look at this node right here, this four, if I was able to achieve a ratio of about, oh, it looks like about 2.6 of, of the right size over the zone capacity, I achieved a right amp of one. And that's actually very, very cool because for performance scaling and quality of service, if I had to use a two terabyte drive, suddenly with spatial locality and using ZNS for the spatial locality, I can almost double the amount of capacity or disk utilization. So, a ter so where before it might have taken two SSDs to store a four terabyte database, I can now store that in a single database, cutting my storage costs down considerably just by increasing the utilization. And just to make sure that this is clear, so imagine that I had like these NAND blocks right here. And what I mean by this 2.6 or so is that I go off and I just get lucky. I start here, I write um, one, two, 2.6 NAND blocks. And when later that large immutable file is deleted, wow, look at this. This NAND block needs no GC. This NAND block needs no GC. And I got 0.4 of this block right here. So potentially this might be GC, but with a little bit of open provisioning, one of these files or one of these parcels gets overwritten, so I get pretty much to close to a write amp of one. So I can increase my user capacity, increase my performance, but there's one other really super cool thing that comes along with this. The higher the write amp, the more PE cycles I need to um, service the lifetime writes of a drive. And let's just say for argument's sake that I had a write amp before and I needed uh, 4K PE cycles. 
in order to support the right workload of this particular SSD over its lifetime. And that would be out of right amplifier. But if I was able to use spatial locality, I changed my um, log structured merge tree to be 2.5, I could then um, claim a right amp of equal to one, which means that the PE cycle should go down somewhat accordingly. So this now goes down to maybe like 1.2 or 1.1. It's a little bit less because the OP doesn't count on it. On it, so there's a little bit of background, but let's just say it's about 1.1 of, uh, for the sake of this discussion. So now, guess what? I had a 4K PE cycle NAN, and now I need something like a 1.1. Wow, this might be our QLC um, NAN, where this might be a TLC NAN. So this has a better cost structure. It stores more bits per cell. So not only did I increased my user capacity, increased my performance scaling, but I've also enabled lower cost media like QLC. So ZNS with spatial locality and this end-to-end -end data placement does a lot of good things. And one of them is it accelerates the transition to this uh, higher density or this QLC line with more uh, bits uh, per cell, once again, further increasing it. So this four terabyte goes maybe to a five terabyte if I had QLC drive. So two terabytes in TLC to five terabytes. So this is a pretty big gain in utilization, but it all comes back with this end-to-end -end data placement and using the maintaining the spatial locality of the rights throughout the entire system. So what do we do with this? information in this um, of data placement and the spatial locality. Well, if you can imagine an imaginary system um, that goes off and has three components to it. The very first component is any application with large immutable files. And what this does, it starts the process on, on starts the process of data placement by using these large immutable files that are written once, maybe read many, but deleted at one time. We now know that a log structure file system is very good at these large, utilizing the large immutable files, but there might be a little bit of GC left on remnants. But this log structure file system will pass down spatial information via the addressing of the um, via the addressing method of the drive. In a standard SSD, the spatial information is lost because the SSD is using a log structure file system and is storing data with temporally. So as things come in, it just stores it based on time. But a ZNS system, ZNS SSD, uses that spatial information to go and place the data in these really nice, nice um, order and we know by now that these nice order when it comes time to moving or deleting files makes things so much easier to reclaim the space, and that reduces write amp. And we also know that the lower write amp also starts enabling things like QLC and even further cost reduction, while at the same time increasing the scalability of performance uh, and also our uh, quality of service. So... If we were to have large block immutable file, uh, files on top of a log structure file system on top of a ZNS storage device, life is being back. Life is, returns to being good. And so that's the left goalpost. I mean, with this type of system and large files, you can take a look at your using your Unix tools to see your average file size. You can see if they're immutable. And if they meet all those criteria, you can go off and use ZNS to significantly reduce the cost of the, of the system while in um, improving performance and quality of service. Now, the right goalpost, I'm going to kind of leave a little bit for this talk that Hans Holmberg has done. It's called Zen FS, Zones and Rocks DB, who likes to take out the garbage. 
but he takes all of this information knowing that this is a log structure merge tree. I got some high frequency writes and I'm going to utilize all of that information. I'm going to put together a system that's going to be um, the lowest cost, highest performing and have a right amp close to one. So make sure you listen into his talk to find out how exactly he did that. In summary, what we found is that large immutable files with the right file systems can significantly reduce the write amp. But we talked mostly about files in a log structured merge tree, but when you expand it a little bit and think about, oh, if I have sets of files and directories and these directories get archived in order, like they're some type of, this is January data, and at the end of the time you move January to a lower cost storage or um, February data, lower cost storage, that if you use this a spatial locality and something like a ZNS drive that maintains that spatial locality, when it comes time to move those directories or sets of files, they move as a bulk. And what that enables is uh, a lower right amp. So it's not just log structured merge tree. It's really, really any type of files or directories or sets of directories that move or migrate at the same time. Now, the traditional SSDs, I think by now we should understand that they use temporal locality, that we know that we have the NVMe streams, but it really didn't provide the scalability. It was trying to use another method that the best method is to have an addressing uh, capability in the SSD that it, may, that it can understand that that addressing is inferring some spatial locality and the SSD will go off and maintain that spatial locality. And when we put that all together, we have um, lower cost storage. We start enabling QLC. We improve the scalability and improve the quality of service. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to my talk and feel free to give me um, a drop and send me an email if you have any questions or at the end of this talk there'll be some time that you can have some q a thank you very much thanks for listening if you have questions about the material presented in this podcast be sure and join our developers mailing list by sending an email to developers-subscribe at snea.org here you can ask questions and discuss this topic further with your peers in the storage developer community for additional information about the Storage Developer Conference, visit www.storagedeveloper.org.